Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. And I'm very, very pleased to be joined today by Peter Biskind, who uh, is the author of the new, newish book, Pandora's Box, How Guts, Guile, and Greed Upended TV, uh, and is, of course, the author of Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, one of the best histories of the uh, kind of age of auteurism in the, the 1960s and 1970s in Hollywood, and Down and Dirty Pictures, which is one of the uh, best looks at the indie boom of the late 80s, early 90s, uh, into the 2000s. I am very excited uh, to have you on the show today, Peter. Thank you for being on. Well, thanks for inviting me. Uh, as I said, I'm a big fan. I've read your stuff, most of your stuff, not all of it, obviously. But um, I just sort of quoted you in an article I wrote for The Nation. I didn't quote you by name, which I should have. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay that's okay my name is is mud some places so you're you're often better off not uh not not mentioning me look here's here's uh, uh why i'm excited to talk to you because you have now written three of uh three of the definitive books about the last great three creative booms in hollywood again the the uh that the rush of the 1960s 1970s new hollywood uh filmmakers you know coppola and uh, and Scorsese culminating in Spielberg and Lucas and, and all that. Uh, and again, the, the indie boom, which is a, a fascinating and tumultuous period. Um, and, and now we have the streaming age. And it's interesting that all three of these books kind of follow the same arc where you have uh, new innovators uh, and then there's a massive expansion of what what is made and what can be made. And then everything kind of contracts again. Uh, do you do you see these patterns happening when you're putting the books together? Yes and no. I mean, that does seem, in fact, to be the trajectory of these uh, three periods. And it makes complete sense because you have the uh, rule breakers, the innovators. And then, you know, once those innovations are made uh, and become they become successful, uh, as they did in the 70s, where, you know, where George Lucas and Spielberg emerged and suddenly um, uh, everybody want, you know, made a lot of money. And you have to understand and remember that it's all about money, you know, basically. So when, you know, when those, inter when those people, people like Spielberg and, and Lucas emerge, emerged in the 70s uh, and the studios saw how much money they could make, they didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to bother with the independents like Scorsese, particularly. And they want they wanted to make the kinds of money that, um, you know, Indiana Jones made and Star Wars made. So uh, you, you always have a contraction, it seems to me, at the ends of these periods of innovation. And the same was true for streaming. It's really interesting to kind of look at what freed cable in the streamers up to do what they what they do. And one, one of the things that you uh, mentioned several times in the book is advertising and moving away from from the world of advertising to uh, paying customers, basically from from um, sponsors to subscribers. I think you put it at one point. Uh, how has how did advertising and getting away from the advertising model help um, encourage this boom in creativity? Well, advertisers didn't want their products to be adjacent uh, to scenes of sex and you know, sequences of sex, violence, or controversy, even. So they, you know, they exerted a conservative um, influence on the networks. Uh, so each network 
uh, created a division called Standards and Practices, which essentially um, imposed a sort of 50s uh, puritanical morality on the shows so that even uh, married couples couldn't be shown to sleep in the same bed, but they had to sleep in twin beds adjacent to each other. Uh, and, and once you broke with that model and no more advertisers, no more sponsors uh, and substituted subscribers, plus the fact that the uh, 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 physical apparatus, hardware for uh, cable, uh, which HBO being the first cable um, network, or cabler, uh, once you substituted that kind of hardware, which was owned by owned privately, the Federal Communications Commission didn't have any um, sway over it. So all of a sudden, um, uh, HBO, which pioneered all this, uh, was free to do sex violence and controversy as much as it wanted. And it took advantage of it, it exploited it. Um, you know, so that was it, that made a huge difference. And uh, in terms of, you know, it, it's interesting because you have this, you you almost have an unlevel playing field between the networks and HBO in terms of what they can show, right? I mean, uh, you know, the networks are stuck with FCC regulations that constrain what can be done to the extent that uh, there there's a, a funny story in your book where one of the execs that I think ABC or NBC basically said, somebody's got to get the Sopranos under control. We can't we can't do what they're doing and it's not fair. Right, that was um, uh, the head of NBC sent out a letter to that effect. And, you know, there are a lot of examples of, you know, where, uh, you know, even the network people looked at Hill Street Blues and said, too many characters, these guys are not, these cops are not, um, uh, these cops are not uh, very good at their jobs and they have messy home lives. And now Hill Street Blues was a network show and, sort of at the tail end of the network era, right before uh, HBO broke the mold, um, you had a couple of network shows like Hill Street Blues, like Homicide, Life on the Streets, that kind of paved the way for HBO. I mean, people wanted to do that kind of programming and uh, and HBO sort of did, you know, you know, had you know, under the same, without the same constraints, took off and did it. I, I I love one thing I love uh, about your book is you highlight uh, you highlight two shows in particular that I think get more attention now than they used to, but have have kind of been lost uh, to 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 the mists of of time when it comes to the prestige era of table uh, cable television because everybody's focused on the Sopranos, right? Sopranos is the start of the new golden age. That's when we got to look at this. But you uh, wisely, I think, focus uh, at first on Tom Fontana's Oz, which is a which was a, a great show. How how was that uh, kind of a groundbreaking work? Well, Fontana says, you know, when he went in to see Chris Albrecht, who was the um, head of programming at HBO at that time, Albrecht said, you know, what are you not supposed to do, uh, which would be to kill your lead character off in the first episode. So Fontana proceeded to. Uh, burn his lead character to have his lead character burned to death in the first episode. Then uh, Albrecht also said, "I don't care about likable characters as long as they're compelling." And all the characters in uh, Oz, they're all prisoner, horrible, you know, prisoners who had done horrible things. One of them is shown uh, burning a Nazi, uh, you know, an Aryan nation 
character is shown burning in the, a swastika on the a rear end of one of the characters with a cigarette butt, lit cigarette. Um, uh, Fontana followed that. His characters were not likable at all, but indeed they were compelling. And then uh, the second show, of course, is The Shield, uh, which uh, comes comes to FX uh, of, uh, a couple years after The Sopranos. You know, it's, it's basically pitched as basic cable Sopranos. And I, I feel like this is, uh, again, I think it is incredibly important in the history of streaming, uh, the cable boom, the, go- the new golden age of TV, whatever we want to call it, because it showed that you could do what HBO was doing on a network that still did have some advertising, but was still mostly uh, reliant on affiliate fees and that sort of thing. Right. I mean, uh, uh, The Shield, you know, like this, like Oz, you know, b- broke a lot of rules. And as you say, it was on a um, uh, not not a premium cable network where you had to pay for subscribers. But um, but FX was supported, sort of supported by advertising, although they didn't have much advertising. Um, but you know, in the in in the last sequ- the last episode of um, the Shield, uh, one of the characters played by Walton Goggins uh, shoots his, <laughs> if I remember correctly, uh, shoots one of his colleagues in the eye, and then arranges for kills his family and then arra- and then shoots himself. I mean, it doesn't get more uh, gory and. Uh, and um, I can't think of the right word, but it doesn't get much uh, more uh, rule breaking than that. I mean, every single rule in the book was broken by that show. And, and it was incredibly, it was an incredibly important show, which, show, which demonstrated that you can do the same thing for uh, uh, non-premium cable channels as you could at HBO. Well, I let's, let's, dive into why this was important uh because i i think there are two kind of discrete strands here right it it, it was both these shows were both uh, uh big award winners they were big prestige shows for for the networks you could put them on the air and you could then go to the emmys and you know michael chiklis wins uh, best actor for the first season of the shield even though the you, you know every episode of the shield is losing a little bit of money um but then on top of that uh for business reasons it, it then gives the network something that they can go to the cable operators and say we want another uh dime per subscriber we want another quarter per subscriber for the affiliate fees uh you, and you can't drop us because we have this incredibly popular show right right Right. Well, that's yeah. That's exactly what happened. And then, how did the how did the cable operators uh, respond to that? Well, I mean, they um, they had really had no choice. I mean, they were incredibly popular shows. They couldn't drop them, so they um, they uh, bit the bullet, and those shows um, did well for them. Let's um. All right. So let let us talk about the Sopranos because obviously the Sopranos is the big the you know the the big show the it remains still i think the most relevant of these shows from these periods people still go back and watch it uh it is it remains very popular um when you were researching the book what was uh what was the mood around david chase like now we're we're a decade or so out decade 15 years however however long it's been forever it's been a long time i feel old uh the 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 uh how we're 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 away from the sopranos now how do 
his writers, his executives, uh, et cetera, kind of think about the making of that show? When I did my major research on The Sopranos was actually the last season, 2007. So they, you know, they all love The Sopranos. Uh, and, and David Chase, I spent a lot of time with David Chase. He was very open. Uh, and I went out to um, Astoria Studios where it was filmed and I watched them film stuff. I interviewed Gandolfini, I interviewed everybody. And HBO was very, very supportive of uh, that story. I mean, they dragged people out for me to interview that I didn't even thought of, you know. So they were only too happy to have The Sopranos, you know, featured in Vanity Fair. Yeah. They they loved the show. I mean, why wouldn't they? uh, Totally. There there does... um... You know, one reason I love your books is because we do get some uh, we we get some some background insider folks who are less less pleased. I mean, there there were some, you know, hurt feelings uh, in the showrunner or in the writer's room. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, David Chase was is a complicated guy. And as uh, one of the participants in the show said to me, you know, he had struggled for you. You know, he was very successful in, in network, making network television, but he hated it. And he struggled for years and years under the, um, in, in, in the sort of confines of network television, obeying the rules that they had, you know, that you couldn't name a gangster. You couldn't use an Italian name for a gangster because you would have the Italian American Association on, on top of you in a second, stuff like that, just crazy stuff. So when, you know, he, um, uh, he, uh, uh, you know, when he got to the Sopranos, he had, he had suffered so much that he was not going to let anyone interfere with, um, you know, uh, his achievement, his show. He was, you know, and he was very protective of it. So, uh, and, you know, I don't want I don't know David Chase well enough to get into the, you know, the nitty gritty of his psychology, but he definitely, uh, you know, he fired at least two writers that were seemingly uh, for no reason. Uh, Ty Kless Kessler was the one he's, he uh, became very close to. Kessler said he used to go out for dinner with David and his wife, Denise. And then one day uh, after a, a script that, uh, both of them had gotten credit for, uh, won an award, um, he fired Kessler. And he did the same thing, well, later on, a couple of years later, to Robin Green, who was also one of the primary writers on the show. He didn't want to share credit. And when somebody else uh, challenged his, um, I guess, uh, ownership of the show, uh, he fired them, apparently. And, uh, you know, I had interviews with a lot of people who said that neither of them deserved to be fired. And he was protecting his, it seemed like he was just protecting his turf. And, um, you know, obviously the people who were fired uh, weren't happy about it. Um, You know, like uh, Kessler tells a story about going back to, after he was fired, going back to New York, sitting on the, he lived in Soho, and, uh, and sitting on the curb and crying. And then David Chase called him during, while he was sitting on the curb and asked him for advice with a, uh, for a, a, future, um, a future episode. 
And uh, Robin Green was, she felt that uh, David hated to look at her, you know, moved her chair so he wouldn't have to, you know, moved her chair in the, in the writer's room so he wouldn't have to see her. And I have a couple of interviews with people who said neither of those firings was justified, but, you know, David Chase wanted to protect his show. And if he felt threatened, he seemed to, uh, that seemed to be what he would, uh, how he reacted. Um, so uh, I guess that answers your question. Yeah, no. And, and it's interesting, too, because you you can you see it uh, pop up elsewhere in the Sopranos lineage. I mean, Matthew Weiner, their story, there's a story about him, you know, not wanting to share credit with a writer uh, at the at the Emmys. And then she she ends up leaving, which is again, it's it's interesting and in how pro- proprietary, as you say, they they were about these shows. Well, you know, they they were. I mean, you know, no question about it. They had fought and suffered to get into the position where they were the showrunners and they were going to protect themselves and protect the show and do what they had to do that they felt had to, to protect the show. Yeah. Uh, so let's um, let us uh, shift to kind of how audiences reacted to these things, because, again, this is a, a running thread in your book. That, uh, you know, uh, when you're talking when specifically when we were talking, you're talking about um, Breaking Bad and and how many terrible things, uh, you know, Brian Cranston's character can do in that show that the audience refuses, like steadfastly refuses to break from him, that they they go along with basically everything he does. And that's true of all of these characters. I mean, Tony Soprano, uh, Vic Mackey, there's nothing they can do to. Uh, lose the audience how how has that what do you make of that i'm just curious like as a as a uh as as a as a social critic as a journalist you know what what do you make of the audience uh behavior there i don't know you know i mean it's it's a little bit shocking you know that uh the these as you say these characters could um behave badly worse than badly. I mean, the more badly they behave, the more the audience seems to like them. I'm not going to call them except premature Trump voters. I mean, it does. It does. It's interesting because it does kind of set that sort of it creates that sort of permission structure in a way. And I've, I've seen this argued more more forcefully. I'm I'm ambivalent about the the uh, real world impact of this sort of thing. But I, I am I am curious because it does really feel like there's a reason we have this we have this age of antiheroes. And then all of a sudden we have Donald Trump up there saying, you know, I could shoot a guy on Fifth Street. And nobody would stop me. Everyone would keep voting for me. Yeah, I'm ambivalent about it, too, because I'm I'm a big fan of antiheroes. But I, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. I, I don't think you could call Trump an antihero because these the antiheroes, uh, most of the antiheroes that you see in these shows had their own co- personal codes, you know, and they and they're shown. Uh, often shown in a benevolent light, you know, like there's Tony and his family, although that's a mixed bag too because he had a bunch of affairs, but still he's a good father. Um, you know, they 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 all had, uh, pos- most of them anyway, had positive, were shown to have positive characteristics, uh, whereas um, somebody like Trump is, they're not so, <laughs> not so evident. Um, but, uh, it, it, it was shocking, the fact that the audiences would not only stay with these characters when they behave badly, but ask for, for worse. You know, um, uh, somebody told me that, I, somebody, somebody said that, uh, 
in Breaking Bad, what's his name's wife? We'd Walter get, White, Skyler. Walter White would get emails, say, you know, would get letters saying, why can't you be more supportive to him? You know, things like yeah. that. Be really, that is really shocking. Yeah, uh, Anna Gunn uh, would, would frequently... Yeah. yeah, I think she even wrote an op-ed for the New York Times. Like, I couldn't believe how much hate mail I personally got uh, for not better backing up my meth-producing husband <laughs> yeah, on the show. I didn't know that. Oh, that's my, interesting. My murderous meth-producing husband. Um, but uh, but then but then also you get the you get the at the end of the show you get people who do want these uh, these uh, violent retributive society backing endings, right? I mean, this was why David Chase was so hesitant to really put a button on on the Sopranos, right? Well, it was one reason. I mean, I mean, there are other reasons too. I mean, David Chase, you know, uh, hated the way uh, uh, network shows tied up, you know, tied everything up in a, in a pink ribbon at the end of the show. And, uh, you know, I was watching something the other day and I kept thinking, you know, that where two characters were saying, you were right, I was wrong, you know, uh, and the, David Chase called them huggable moments in network shows, which were sort of mandatory uh, for the uh, wrap up of the shows, the last episode of the last season, where, and he made fun of it. And it's one of the, it's true, it's one of the reasons he refused to do it uh, in The Sopranos. Um, but, he, but he also liked to leave things untied, you know, untied, un, unresolved. Uh, no, no pink ribbons in David Chase's shows. Mm. But there is also, I mean, look again. There was a, there was a reaction. You had these audiences who, for years and years, wanted wanted more blood and violence. We we just want we want the whackings. That's why we're watching The Sopranos. And then at the end of the show, we're like, well, Tony has to pay a price. Well, some people said that, you know, that, that I don't know that it was, uh, I think there was a, certainly a, a segment of the audience that wanted him to pay a price, but I think there was probably a second, a segment of the audience that didn't and Chase didn't resolve it. It just left it, left it unresolved. Yeah. Neither, uh, neither, neither of those audience segments got what they wanted. <laughs> the David Chase one. Uh, we should, uh, oh, the, all right. So, so uh, let's move into the world of streaming. All right. So we have, the rise of HBO, which expands to the basic cable uh, universe, and then kind of lurking in the background uh, until we get to the the last section of your book, you have Netflix. You have, you have these occasional check ins on what Netflix is up to and how they are they're growing until all of the sudden everybody wants to be Netflix. What right. what happened there? What was the Netflix? Tell me then. Give us the the two minute Netflix story. Well. Uh, for one thing, uh, Netflix innovated in several ways. First of all, one of the things that streaming did was they uh, they broke the what was called the, with the, broke the linear network schedule and the linear linear um, cable schedule. In other words, in other words, HBO was always at a single you know at a certain time. And if you wanted to watch HBO, you knew what that time was, and you uh, and you put away you know put aside your own uh whatever your own schedule and sat down and watched the sopranos whereas streaming uh uh there was no schedule so you could watch a streamer anytime you wanted it gave it gave viewers a lot more leeway and a lot more power over the show in some sense over the schedule of the show i should say secondly net uh, streaming introduced network netflix introduced binging 
where you could drop a whole season in one day, which at least they did that for a while until it became too expensive. They don't do that anymore. Um, and that was a huge thing. Uh, and it, and that made it that made a difference not only in uh, to the viewer but also to the creatives who because you got story arcs that could go over a whole um, season instead of one episode uh, and that attracted better writers gave them more freedom as I said uh, and better writers attracted better directors and better actors so that create to some degree created a whole stampede towards. Netflix and the better the shows got, the more um, people watch them. So I think I've probably forgotten one or two things that Netflix did that uh, that innovated. They they boasted about uh, password sharing, so uh, people in the same you know friends and families could share passwords, and which uh, Netflix didn't um, didn't object to that, even though it cost them money. And no advertising, that was a huge thing. Now, uh, also cable had no advertising either, but um, that was a, also, a, uh, you know, they carried that over from cable. So there were three or four things that Netflix did that, um, that innovated. And the interesting thing is now they're sort of uh, reversing themselves and going back on all those innovations. Well, in what ways? I mean, obviously they are introducing advertising tiers uh, and that sort of thing, but how how else are, are they, they kind of stepping back? They decided that binging was too expensive, so they don't binge anymore. And, and password sharing was too expensive, so they don't, they don't they're cracking down on password sharing. And, and introducing um, uh, ad-supported tiers is a huge thing because, in my view, it's a dangerous thing because that's it, it gives... Uh, sponsors and advertisers uh, a foot in the door to do what they did with network, which was to uh, uh, sen sen essentially self-censor, make force networks to self-censor because they, they didn't want, as I said in the beginning, didn't want their products to be adjacent to scenes of sex violence and controversy. And I think the same thing may happen to, um, uh, to Netflix. Plus, um, you know, Netflix is also showing that one of the major things that happened to Netflix, you know, when Netflix started, Reed Hastings, who was the uh, founder of it, said his only uh, competition was sleep. Now, of course, there are many streaming services and they're all competing with each other for the biggest and broadest audience. And once you do that, you've got to have biggest, the biggest and the, the broadest um, programming which means, again, uh, you don't want to alienate people. You're more interested in um, not offending people than you are in uh, uh, attracting people. Yeah. yeah I mean, so you know, networks was a disruptor like HBO, and now they're undoing their disruptions. Uh, I, I wrote about this. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, but I do I do think the relationship between advertising and television is the key to all of this. I mean, I think getting away from advertising, getting away from the reliance on advertising is what allowed the medium to grow up. And now it really does feel like between the need for HBO or Disney Plus or Netflix or whoever to accumulate these hundred million subscriber, you know, behemoths. And the increased reliance on these advertising models to do it, right? The cheaper we're going to get people to come in at six or seven bucks a month and we're going to sell them ads. Uh, it does feel like 
they're headed back toward the lowest common denominator appeal to everybody model that made network TV kind of so useless in the main. Well, I think that's true. I mean, one of the one of the uh, big attractions for Netflix uh, for creators to go to Netflix and and you you know in the beginning, early days of Netflix, you had people leaving um, uh, cablers and networks like you know uh, to to uh, leaving those the creators leaving those to go to Netflix because it offered them more freedom and. And they said they welcomed niche programming to small groups of uh, of uh, viewers. Now they're not in, no longer interested in niche programming. They want, as I said, the biggest possible audience. And that, and you're right. I think that the freedom from uh, uh, from sponsors and advertisers that Netflix initially uh, achieved uh, was a key to their success and a key to their the quality of their programming. And now that's out the window. Or we yeah. made the window. Netflix is interesting too because it is—it's a tech company, but it is still also a studio. I mean, their their business is TV mostly, but also movies. Um, and it is now finding itself in competition with actual, you know, the real big monster tech companies, Amazon and Apple in particular, uh, which creates. Which creates an interesting thing because I, you know, you, you you write about this in your book, but like, what is the Apple TV brand exactly? What, how does that conflict with the Apple brand writ large or can they exist in, in tandem? What are, what are the tech companies actually doing here as we shift to uh, a more, again, tech savvy, tech friendly mode of watching things, which is streaming? Well, I, I mean, Apple does, in, what, in a way, have a brand. Even I mean, I, I was going to say that the brand of these tech companies, like Amazon and Apple, is money. You know, because Apple can, you know, each of them could spend. You know, I mean, uh, streaming is a hobby for these company for these big tech companies, uh, and they make their money elsewhere. Uh, Apple, however, does have a bit of a, a brand, which is essentially it's a nice a nice streamer. You know, uh, and, and initially when it was started, uh, uh, somebody said to me, uh, or I read somewhere that uh, um, Tim, uh, Tim Cook was quoted as saying, um, "These sh we don't want the I don't want these shows to be mean." You know, and um, so Apple, um, you know, Apple is this, is the, you know the show that made Apple was Ted Lasso. Which is, you know, not necessarily the birth, but the maturation of comfort viewing, which is the opposite of the Tony Soprano, uh, Oz, uh, HBO formula, which was discomfort viewing, mm -hmm. and that makes uh, that makes a huge difference. Amazon, not so much, but Amazon is sort of all over the place. I don't think they know what they're doing, you know. And uh, the the other thing I guess that should be said is that Netflix. You know, in the beginning, HBO, I'm jumping around a little bit here, but in the beginning, HBO went out of its way to define itself against the network. So they would never, they wouldn't hire, uh, if they could help it, uh, executives who had worked, who had worked at networks or studios. And when they hired Tom Fontana to do Oz, they were a little bit ambivalent about it because he had worked on on network. He had done say elsewhere and a few other network shows, but um, and Netflix was the same way. 
they um, they did not hire people that had worked for for net, uh, network or cable, and uh, now they're recreating themselves in the image of the networks in the in the in the studios uh, by hiring people directly from those uh, studios and networks. So the, you know they just sort of turn themselves inside out. Yeah. No, I, uh, I, the, the branding question is fascinating to me because I, I often kind of, you know, you can, you can, you can, you, you get back in the days of, you know, late nineties, early aughts HBO, you had an idea of what an HBO show was, uh, or, you know, is, you know what a CBS show is, right. Or, a or, a, a an NBC sitcom in the parks and rec era, but with the streamers, they are just trying to appeal to so many people at once that it's hard to pinpoint exactly what they're doing. Well, I mean, I think, again, I think that's true. I agree with that. Uh, um, I mean, initially, again, uh, uh, Netflix did not so much really have a brand. I mean, I, Iger said, said uh, Netflix doesn't have a brand. He, brand. he was criticizing it and comparing it to Disney, which does have a brand. But the brand that, that Netflix had was an aggregate of niches, niches, you know, it had, you know, so that there would be a, you know, a show for almost every niche. And if you added up all these niches, it was a platform, you know, Iger called it, not a, not a brand like Disney. Um, but now um, uh, those niches, the dis distinctions between all those niches have kind of disappeared and, you have this kind of soup of, of um, broad-based programming designed to appeal to the biggest possible audience. That's their, you know, that's their business model now. Yeah. Yeah. And Disney itself. I mean, Disney is bringing Hulu uh, into the Disney platform. So it's right. going to, you're going to have Disney and Hulu and ESPN plus kind of all in the same place. Maybe we'll have the ABC network. I like, I'm, I, I'm, well, the other thing you get is shows that could be that, that you know the streamers are airing shows that could have been produced by the networks, you know, and shows that started on streaming are going to the networks and vice versa. I mean, certainly when Netflix started, it used to license a lot of network shows, but now you're having something like um, uh, Murder in the Building, which started as a streaming show, I guess, on Hulu. Mm -hmm. Now ABC, yep. you know, Disney brought it to ABC Network. Yeah. And then NBC, right. NBC picks up uh, manifest and brings yeah. it to uh, and then suits does huge numbers, which yeah. was a USA network show. I, I the whole the whole business is is weird. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, well, I, uh, um, I say one more the yeah, distinction, yeah, please. distinction between um, uh, streaming and networks is breaking down, I think. And, and that's partly a result of um uh, that's partly a result, I think, of opening the uh, door to sponsors. But I think that had been happening before spot they did this before there were ad supported tiers. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, one thing, one thing I want to ask, and I, I, I just want to shift away slightly from from the questions of streamers and networks and all that, uh, because it's it's uh, one thing I enjoyed about your book is that you uh, uh, a couple times mentioned Richard Rushfield and the Ankler, one of my favorite uh, publications. I love, I love. Um, what Richard is doing over there, frequent guest guest on the show. Uh, and I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to get your sense of how the media landscape kind of looks right now in the trade publications, because it, it does feel like we have this weird, you know, Penske media kind of blob, 
thing, but then also a bunch of independent voices like the Ankler, David Polo, and other guys. Uh, what's your sense of how how the media, the trade media, media looks? Well, I mean, I think you know things like the Ankler and um, uh, uh, and Puck are only to be applauded because they they sort of broke with the uh, again with the um, the kind of bland model that uh, a variety represented, for example, for years and years and still does to, to a great degree. And they adopt, you know, they adopted a much more critical, much more, um, uh, I don't know, piercing and aggressive and, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, model of reporting, uh, uh, almost an, you know, anti- uh, uh, variety model of reporting, and I think that's, I think that's all to the good. Um, and uh, I don't know what I don't know the figures on how well these, uh, like the Ankler is doing, but um, uh, I think they're doing a good job. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's also I think it's also telling too that these are you know Puck the Ankler, um, uh, Semaphore, I guess. Uh, these are. Um, subscriber driven models too. I mean again this the 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 question of subscribers sponsors versus subscribers is I think the key one for our of our age. And this is one reason why I love working where I work at the Bulwark is that we are a subscriber driven property. It's we we exist because enough people pay for it to let us exist. And I I don't I I I look at where the streamers are going and I kind of cringe at the thought of advertising reemerging as a, an enormous revenue source, I think it's nothing but bad. It, it, there's nothing good about it. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens with with uh, with uh, uh, things like this, like the Ankler, as they get bigger and bigger, you know, and their expenses increase, you know, and uh, you know, I'd hate to see them. Uh, I would hate to see it. Uh, uh, follow the uh the model of um netflix for example i mean i don't think that will happen but um you know i have to be careful um i think you know because with success comes risks like that you know um increasing expenses um uh and 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 the need for more money and once you need more you know the, the need for more money becomes pressing then you make compromises that you probably shouldn't yeah Yep. Uh, all right. Uh, I well, closing question here. So Pandora's box, just as a concept, Pandora's box, uh, the mythical concept is, you know, you, you we open Pandora's box and we let out all the evils into the world. What did what did opening the Pandora's box of prestige TV do to uh, do to the world for both good and ill? What is your what's your what was the thinking behind the title here? to open the box and see what was inside and, uh, you know, for better or for worse. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot that, um, say cable and stream. I mean, I, you know, when I started the book, uh, I, it, it began as kind of celebration for so the era of so-called peak TV, which, uh, you know, has produced, um, has attracted, you know, all sorts of talent and has produced some of the best, uh, narrative, uh, story storytelling that I think we've ever seen, you know, in in, in a uh, in, in you know on a in an accessible way uh, to a to a broad audience. And 
while I was writing the book, the book took, took about three years to write, um, some of the um, not so great uh, 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 contents of Pandora's box started to appear, like the ones we've been discussing, you know, the ones which um, sort of, you know, seem like it's, they're going to neuter uh, HBO. Uh, you know, one big, one big issue here we haven't discussed is consolidation and this asleep at the switch uh, uh, anti-monopoly uh, division of the Justice Department, which has allowed all this consolidation, which has allowed um, big tech to, you know, Amazon to start its own streaming network and has allowed uh, Apple to move in and, and create uh, its own streamer. Um, you know, that's had a lot to do with, um, uh, because, you know, you know, you know, look at what happened with AT&T, basically just pretty much destroyed HBO by buying, um, uh, uh, by buying Discovery and, um, and, and creating the, creating the climate in which HBO's programming is diluted by, you know, you know, the famous example is Mr. Pimple Popper, but mm. shows as well, um, you know, and and the result of being discovery discovery taking on a huge debt, which makes them more interested and in, it seems like in lowering their debt uh, and selling themselves still again to a bigger company than it is in creating good TV. So I, that's a digression because we hadn't really discussed consolidation. Um, but I forget what your your actual oh your question was Pandora's box why well you know consolidation is one of the things that popped out of the box you know when you open the lid. Um, so I wanted to do both you know and and uh, as I said initially it was supposed to be a more of a celebration than it is a uh, as a requiem, but as things changed. Uh, and the whole picture got darker and darker. The the book changed, and um, and the future to me doesn't look all that bright. Uh, hopefully, you know, one of the things that does happen is these things are cyclical. So if you know if the era peak TV is you know essentially destroyed, uh, you know I don't know I, the figures on original the decline in original scripts that are uh, produced by. Uh, the streamers, uh, you know, is, is shocking. But um, as, you know, let's say as uh, sponsors consolidate the consolidate themselves, you know, a new Netflix will appear and a new HBO will appear. So I'm not completely pessimistic, put it that way. Um, you know, is you know, it'll it'll come back eventually, and it hasn't disappeared yet either. There's still plenty of good good stuff to watch, although it's hard to find. There's there's so much of it that is a there is a a glut problem. Let me. I, I always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything I should have asked. If you think there's things uh, folks should know about your book or the world of streaming, whatever, any, anything. Well, I think you've been pretty thorough. Um, the only thing I, I think we didn't, as I said, that we didn't discuss was kind of consolidation. And um, but you know, I I, I do want to end up in a semi -ho um, hopeful note. I mean, I. I'm always surprised at the stuff I just stumble across on Netflix, which is just buried. You know, I just came across a Steve Boschko show called Murder in the First, which I think was uh, created in two, it's three seasons, I think starting in 2014, 15, and 16. And it's, it's not, it's no Hill Street Blues, but it's very good, you know, and there's a lot of stuff like that you just don't hear about. And if you spend the time to explore, say, uh, 
Netflix, Netflix, you'll find it. And it's, and it's, um, so it's, it's by no means a, you know, a, a dark and dismal picture, although it's um, certainly there are plenty of indicators that are not so great. Clouds on the horizon. All right. Uh, Mr. Biskin, thank you very, very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, th- as I said, thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Uh, the name of the book, again, is Pandora's Box, How Guts, Guile, and Greed Upended TV. Um, it's available on uh, Amazon, uh, speaking of speaking of our tech overlords, uh, and bookstores everywhere else. Um, uh, if you if you are interested in reading it, I highly recommend it. Again, if you if you have lived through this uh, era of TV like I have, it's it's a it's a fascinating behind the scenes look at a lot of um, the great the great titles of our age. So I am uh, very happy to have uh, Peter on today. Thank you again. Thank you. Uh, my name again is Sonny Bunch. I am culture editor at the Bulwark, and I will be back next week with another episode of the Bulwark Coast of Hollywood. We'll see you guys then. Mm-hmm.